Welcome to Venture Boldly, an Alter podcast. Each week, we host inspiring conversations with game-changing entrepreneurs, investors, and operators, building and scaling the tech ecosystems of Latin America, South and Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. At Alter Global, we are a different kind of Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Beyond returns, we are guided by a belief in the power of tech unicorns rather than traditional foreign aid to completely transform nations. Our founders are role models in the making, catalyzing the next wave of ventures in their communities. Our entrepreneurs are not just building their companies, they're building their countries. I'm so excited to introduce to you all the very first guests of the Alter podcast, Tiger Fang. So the Alter team and I have now met with Tiger and his team in Indonesia and in the US many times, in addition to countless Zoom calls and countless WhatsApp messages. And throughout every single interaction, throughout his entire track record, it's so clear to me that he's just one of the most brilliant and hardworking, yet totally down-to-earth entrepreneurs I've ever met. So several years ago, Tiger started out as the managing director of Lazada Group in Bangkok. Then he went on to become the Uber general manager of Western China, where Chengdu was once the company's busiest city in the world based on daily trip volume. And then he became the Uber GM of Indonesia. Today, Tiger is now the co-founder and CEO of Cargo Technologies. And just let me give you a bit of a backdrop here. So in Indonesia, logistics makes up one quarter of the national $1.2 trillion GDP. And with co-founder and CTO Yodi Aditya, Tiger co-founded Cargo, the digital logistics network of Southeast Asia. So having raised $38.6 million from the likes of Sequoia, Intuito, Coca-Cola, Amantil, and Alter, Cargo is first focused on tracking. So by eliminating middlemen by its direct platform, Cargo unprecedentedly increases transparency, ensures quality service, and cuts costs for the entire industry. So with a digital economy set to triple, to $309 billion by 2025, Southeast Asia needs a streamlined logistics to keep up with demand. So today, you'll hear Tiger's origin story, the challenges of emerging market entrepreneurship, and why Silicon Valley should watch out for Southeast Asia and Indonesia's inevitable massive blitzscaling. So tell me, Tiger, Tell our listeners in 15 seconds why they should listen to the rest of our podcast. Well, no pressure, Rita. Well, I, I think people should tune in and, and listen because Indonesia is going to be the next big thing if people don't know that already. And you know, I'm going to tell folks uh, about our journey and how to launch sort of a startup as a you know almost a foreign national like in a country like Indonesia. I wasn't born in Indonesia. I spent a lot of time there, but and I think Indonesia is one of those few places in the world where you can actually go and build a tech startup and be able to really change the trajectory of um, I, I think logistics in, in a place like Indonesia and not be actually being from there. So I think this is like super rare and and super like interesting that only places like Indonesia can you know be supportive of such you know entrepreneurship. Awesome, Tiger. So that was you know probably triple the amount of time I gave you with 15 seconds, but that's okay, I'll let you off the hook. <laughs> All right, so why don't we just start with like your own origin stories? Um, you know, I love to refer to alter entrepreneurs as these superheroes who are not just building a company, they're building their nation. And I would just love to hear, and I'm sure our audience would love to hear about you. 
who you are, where you're from, what you've done before cargo. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in, no, I was kidding. Uh, I first started uh, to be in tech, actually, really at the height of the financial crisis. So I started, you know, as about all millennials, um, you know, graduating around 2008, the best time ever to go into, you know, finance. It was a global financial crisis, and a lot of folks were looking for ways to, to come out. And I think what really attracted me to me was, you know, I really wanted to be back in Asia. Uh, I was born in China. I immigrated to the United States when I was very little. I spent a lot of time in Singapore growing up, and, you know, I call Hawaii my home, so it's so really sort of like all around. But I I really wanted to get back to, to Asia and I wanted to get back to Southeast Asia because I think this this is really a very dynamic part of the world where there's experiencing tremendous growth and all the things that you sort of talked about, right? But back in 2008, you know, I felt like I really wanted to get out of finance. I was too bored sitting in an air-conditioned office trying to do spreadsheets all day and I wanted to get back and, you know, get into the real world. And so that really sort of led me to explore different careers and I was very lucky enough to to be joined with Rocket Internet, um, Lazada at the time. Lazada uh, was an e-commerce sort of startup just coming out out of incubation period by Rocket Internet. And no one knew back then how to do e-commerce. And so that's what really excited me. I was supposed to come to Thailand to manage the data sort of team, right? I was like supposed to be a business intelligence um, unit. And when I got here, Everything logistics was breaking down. Our warehouse was breaking down. We wanted to rent our own trucks. And, and I spent actually the first three months ever in Thailand on the outskirts of Bangkok trying to set up a warehouse. And that's where I got you know the first taste of logistics in Southeast Asia and how just inadequate it was to serve the incoming or the oncoming onslaught of boom of, of, of e-commerce and everything that has to do with the digital innovation. And when we first actually started thinking about renting our own trucks, from there, I, I really fell in love with you know starting sort of operations from zero to one, really the launch phase of any business. And I joined Uber. Uber had just raised a big round from Google. This was back in 2013, and they wanted to come out to expand sort of globally into Southeast Asia. I raised my hand and, and I ended up spending a couple years launching Uber throughout Southeast Asia. And, and that was my first time actually in, coming to Indonesia. I never actually heard of Indonesia. People think like Indonesia, oh, is that in Bali? These are like real questions that you know, real questions I get. Um, but the first time I was coming to Indonesia, landing in Jakarta was to launch Uber, launched a couple of different uh, cities and, and countries after that and spent some time in China, ran sort of Western China for Uber before we came back, before I came back to run Indonesia for Uber before founding Cargo. So, so it's a long sort of story, but uh, you know, I think uh, you know, connecting the dots, I think is, is, is what's really important. And you know, each of these experiences helped to sort of build the experience and and the know-how to sort of do my next thing. And so Cargo is really a culmination of all these years of finding in the trenches and, and launching cities and, and thinking about marketplaces. And I'm really, you know, I'm really, really glad that it all came together. And by the way, the job that I, I got recruited to come to Southeast Asia for as a data analyst or to run the data team, I never worked in BI my entire life. How did that feel to come straight into a new type of job, a new, entirely different place, entirely different work culture? How did that feel? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you, you have to be ready and you have to embrace the chaos. And I think that's like one of the key things about being in a startup, right? So if you're, you know, super structured and, you, and every day has to be very structured for you and, and you, sort of have a rare, you, you have a very planned out path for a career trajectory and sort of like your career path, I think startups are going to just be very chaotic and it's going to be very sort of uncomfortable for you. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that's why I learned like, like from the, from day one, right? Like I was like, came in on a student time, like, Hey, I'm ready to crunch numbers. And it's like, Nope, you actually got to go out, you know, to the, to the three hours outside of Bangkok and like go build this warehouse. I'm like, what? Like you got to be ready for that. And you got to be able to embrace that. And, and hopefully at cargo, like that's, <laughs> 
We're still doing trucking. <laughs> We're still doing logistics. That's still the goal. But you know, one day you could be you know trying to close a big deal with Coca Cola and Unilever, um, and then the next day you could be you know in the truck, right? Like trying to figure out like what do truck drivers want. And, and I think you got to be ready for that. And I think people who are are the ones that are going to really be are going to be really successful. And that's uh, yeah, I think that's a lesson that I definitely have taken to heart. Yeah, and Tiger, when you were at Uber, you, you were like, you just raised your hand saying, "I want to go uh, to Indonesia." How many other people raised their hands? How many people expressed interest in working abroad in a totally different culture? So we had this role called the country launcher, and I think launcher is like just the best role, you know, for like a single twenties, um, you know, person because like literally the role is. You get parachuted into a country. You figure out what is the business model. How do you you know take things to market? And you launch you know, Uber and you do the pricing. You figure out the marketing strategy. You figure out what is the type of product, what kind of car. You figure out you know the competitive landscape. You figure out you know corporate structure. And then you go and hire a team um, that's ready to basically replace the processes that you made. And you go go into the next country. And so I was. It takes a certain type of you know person to be able to live in that lifestyle. So for the last you know for the first like two three years of Uber, I was literally in a city for three to six months. And then just when you feel like you've really gotten to know the city and gotten to know the people, um, you're actually on the next plane out. And so it's it's sad, but like you gotta just be ready for that kind of adventure. And I definitely was. And so there's a there's a whole team of us um, launchers uh, that that launched all, all of these cities all over the world actually. And uh, you know I thought that was just one of the best experiences of my life so far. But yeah, there's there's obviously a sacrifice. And 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 you know now I have a two months old kid. I don't think my wife and kid would appreciate if I uh, had to move every three months. <laughs> That idea or that notion of being ready for adventure at any moment fits very well with our alter tagline of "venture boldly." So, thank you for sharing that story with us. So, now you've just launched Uber in Indonesia. How did you come up with this idea to start Cargo? What was that moment? That aha moment? Yeah. So, man, a lot of being an entrepreneur is is really you know comes down to like luck, and it comes down to being the right place at the right time. And I don't ever want folks to lose sight of that, right? Um, there, there's obviously perspiration, uh, and you have to work hard, and you have to be ready to pounce at the opportunity. But a lot of it is, is you know, is by chance. And and had we been sort of the master of our own destiny, like there could have been a very different result, right? So there's sort of this whole of like, what would we be able to do ourselves if we were the masters of our own destiny and, and and sort of controlled our own fate, right? Because if you're in a big company, you know, like Uber, there's a lot to be said about like the strategy of exiting and sort of selling off its pieces, and and you know, I think overall, like exiting sort of markets where you know profitability was the main question, I think was the right move for Uber as a as a shareholder of Uber. But I, I think it's just it's very different if it was your own company, right? And Uber had a portfolio, global portfolio, and Southeast Asia was ever, ever going to just be one part of its core global portfolio. So I think there was sort of a big question in the back of our minds: is can we do this ourselves? Um, and the second is like you know we loved working together, and we loved working together to solve big problems at Uber, right? And and we had you know years of experience of building a two-sided marketplace, um, of training drivers, right? Of of this offline to online execution. And so the next thing was like, how can we optimize to to stay together? Because we had a team of you know almost 150 people, people that you know I recruited from day one. And so a lot of folks that are now at Cargo, I recruited being an intern at at, at Uber, right? When we were first launched, and so we we're trying to optimize to staying together, um, and then we we're trying to optimize for like what problems you know could we sort of be able to leverage our experience in Uber, and like what, what could be interesting? Because I really thought I was going to be like 
the watch king of Indonesia and like import watches. And what like that's that would have been cool, but like I just wasn't excited about it. And and so like how we found cargo was, you know, we started talking to, you know, other drivers, like uh, truck drivers. Um, and, and it was it was a whole bunch of like different business models that we we're looking at. And when we started talking to, you know, big truck drivers, a couple of things really struck me. Number one was Indonesia spends about 25% of its GDP on logistics, right? Which is like huge. If you compare that to US or Japan or developed countries, like that's single digit percentages, right? Like I think for, for, for the United States, it's like six or 7%. And so that equals about $200 billion on logistics spend. And when we talk to, you know, companies, the number one biggest thing people always said, um, whether that's e-commerce, you know, to do to business, like to be able to like ship things, to, to be able to ship things to port or export. Like number one thing our people always say is like, gosh, logistics, like it's just such a big like time suck and like it sucks. And it's like no one had a great, you know, story to tell about their logistics experience, right? And on the other side of this was, you know, truck drivers. And truck drivers on average was earning about 300 US dollars a month, which by, you know, you're just like, okay, well, if Indonesia is spending a quarter of GDP on logistics, right, one of the highest in the world, where is it all going? It's certainly not going to the truck drivers. The truck drivers were making, you know, less than some of our Uber drivers uh, back in the days. And so I, I think those were the insights that we surfaced. And, and then we sort of like said, okay, this is interesting. Like, can we, can we find out why? And can we sort of like dig a little bit deeper? We've done a whole bunch of interviews. We've gone to a couple of different trucking companies to ask them what is their sort of utilization? How do they think about, you know, driver apps and, and all these things that we had that we had done for Uber? And it just kind of like clicked for us was that there's a whole bunch of inefficiencies. And, you know, what we did for, for, for Uber, for passenger cars, could probably apply to these big 18-wheeler trucks. And we were very naive because we we're like, oh, yeah, how hard could it be? It's nothing like food delivery or, or, or ride hailing. But I think like we went in starry-eyed thinking that, you know, we, we had the answer. And so you need a little bit of serendipity and luck. You need a little bit of overconfidence, but, but like a little bit of like dumb luck and, and just, uh, you know, being very idealistic. And I think that's what sort of gets you to ultimately go and start a business, which is like pretty crazy if you ask anybody, like, why would you start a company in Indonesia? Like, it's not a very easy answer, and it's not something that, you know, happens overnight. And so, like, by, at this time, you've now worked at Lazada, you've now worked at Uber in Southeast Asia. What other challenges cropped up in your mind as you were contemplating whether or not to start cargo in Indonesia, in this emerging market? Yeah, I, I think, like, natural questions, like is this going to be, you know, a business that's going to make money? <laughs> is this going to be something that, you know, we'd want to work on for like more than 10 years, right? And is, is this going to be, you know, something that's going to be interesting and impactful? I think we're like probably the biggest questions in my mind, right? And, and so we're very lucky in, in a couple of regards. Number one was to do anything, you need a solid team. And we were very lucky to have a strong relationship, you know, from all the ex Uber folks that you know they were ready to do they were ready to do something together. And they were, you know, once they sort of you know learn about the idea and learn about like you know the vision, I, you know, I think they quickly came on board, right? So as soon as I had the support of let's say like the five to ten people that you know I really wanted to pull you know on board, I just felt a, a jolt of confidence that like hey, even if this doesn't work, at least I'll be enjoying my time building something together with people that I really like working with, right? And then secondly was just like this is business model work like have we seen this business model you know elsewhere and i think a lot of startups uh, especially in the emerging markets really really draws its inspirations from developed countries and, and business models that have maybe scaled um you know in, in the u.s or china or india and i think you know this trucking and sort of digitalization of logistics was was just so happens like you know something that was getting funded you had convoy we were 
the United States, you had Black Buck, Revigo in India, you had Mangbang um, and, and Hochabang and, and sort of Lala Move, like all of these logistics companies doing very well in, in these other countries and, and scaling very, very quickly. And so for us, it was sort of like, okay, well, look, like, this is not a matter of if it will happen, but it's just a matter of when, who's going to do it and who's going to be the best to execute it. And, and I think then that plus the team commitment just gave me a lot of confidence that like, you know, we're going to be able to execute the fastest. And then lastly, just like, am I going to be able to do this for 10 years, right? Like I, I think 10 years is always sort of like the trajectory or sort of the time you know, that you want to put into a business, right? Like we, we, we sort of, you know, between Yodi and I and the, you know, the core team, the, the, the core sort of exec team that we were able to recruit, you know, we said ourselves like, is logistics important? Like, is the mission of digitizing logistics, reducing inefficiencies, like, is that going to be cool, you know, 10 years from now? And, and I think one of the things that really, really like sort of helped me to make the decision was like, you know, 100 years from now, like, goods are going to be moved by trucks, right? It, it might be like fully autonomous, although I, I don't know when autonomous trucks are going to come to Indonesia. Inside of the next decade would be like like blowing past my estimates, but things are going to be moved 100 years from now by trucks. Um, and so this is going to, this is not just some, you know, hot trend that like, you know, it's in like the next social media app or, or whatever it is. This is a real impact. This is real things being moved, the real economy. And as I dug deeper about like, you know, what type of, you know, impact that we can really make with all the data that we have, it, it just really excited me more and more, right? Because if you think about like, you know, Indonesia and any emerging economy, one of the key sort of inhibitors of growth is this cost of logistics, right? And and this is why you see like, um, you know, a lot of countries copying the China model is investing billions of dollars into infrastructure, right? The United States did this with interstate highways, but after World War II, China has spent, you know, literally trillions of dollars in building the highest um, the amount of like high-speed rails, the most number of like you know paved roads, and and so Indonesia is actually not doing anything different. Like we're 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 going to commit four hundred billion dollars over the next you know couple of years to build infrastructure with sea and ports and 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 roads. We already have linked some of the biggest islands. There's a Sumatra you know highway that was completed last year. Java highway was completed you know um, last year. Really linking sort of you know the 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 most dense parts of Indonesia to the rest of Indonesia, and uh, and and. This is just like paving the way for us, right? Which is, you know, where we think of ourselves as building the digital layer of infrastructure. This is going to be very impactful, and, and all those three boxes sort of just, you know, checked itself and, and really lit up. And, and I think that's what gave us a lot of conviction that this is the right, you know, business for us to 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 spend the next, you know, decade, if not decades, of our lives in building. Amazing, Tiger. I feel so excited just, just hearing you speak with this one answer. Um, it reminds me of, um, I think it was in Google or Tomasic Bain's 2019 Southeast Asia report. It said that logistics was one of the key, one of the top barriers to growth. But one year later, in 2020, last year, the report now says it's made some headway. What happened? Like, why? Is logistics Cargo starting. Why is logistics growing? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Love it. I, I wish. Yeah, I think. Um, I think like logistics is just such a big topic and such a multivariate problem, right? Just because we can digitize trucking, it doesn't mean that solves all the answer. Indonesia, for those who don't know, and I think maybe we should set a little bit more context to what the geography of Indonesia looks like, um, is an island nation. Um, it's got famously, you know, quoting like 17,000 islands. It's the fourth most populous country in the world, 260 million people in population, and in one of the fastest growing sort of economies in the world. Prior to COVID, I think it was registering five or six percent 
percent, um, and it's and, and it's got a, it's uh, projected to be um, you know one of the the fastest growing I think in the next um, decade because of uh, just great infrastructure and great sort of you know political stableness and and sort of uh, you know there's a lot of sort of ma- macro factors that makes Indonesia sort of really ripe for, for that economic growth, and so. You know, logistics, I think, just right off the bat, because of the geography, because of 17,000 Island, is just a huge hurdle for people to mentally get across. But I think one of the things that was interesting for us is that, you know, between three islands, Sumatra, Java, and Bali, and most people will know Bali, and hopefully when, when things open up again, um, you know, we'd love to host you guys in Bali as, you know, for, for like Elter's like next summit or something. But between the... Excellent, <laughs> excellent. The, um, between these three islands is actually like almost 70% of the economic output and about like 60 or 70% equal amount of the population, right? And so just trying to, to build out the infrastructure focus centered on these three islands will, will get you, you know, almost 60, 70% there. And I think that's really credit to the investment from the government as well as in the private sector, right, which, you know, has invested, you have all of these like Gojek and Tokopedia and Shopee, like all of these really, really big e-commerce platforms, you know, sinking potentially billions of dollars to you know, bring folks online to be able to, you know, bring last mile logistics to, to delivery, you know, outside of the main cities. I think those are huge sort of drivers of basically the efficiency, the improving efficiency in logistics. But I want to just make sure for the record that like the government has really, really been leading the effort, right, with digitizing ports, building highways, and, and those those infrastructure spending, um, I think, are, are, are going to be the biggest sort of drivers towards a better efficient logistics system going forward. Yeah, Doug, I was going to ask you that, like, how often does cargo participate in government discussions on improvements to infrastructure or, or, or like what's what's fueling the government's desire to improve infrastructure is it this strong growth in e-commerce is it um what i think um it's probably best to we should do a clubhouse session with the different ministers of transportation and um, you know certainly foreign investments but i think e-commerce has been sort of like leading i guess the retail sector so e-commerce as a percentage of retail has gone from you know single digits to i think the last figure i saw was like you know mid double digits within the year right so covid has really certainly pushed the acceleration of that sort of adoption but but so has you know the the billions of dollars in subsidies right whether you call that like if you go to any sort of coffee shop in jakarta like you see like three or four different digital wallets always trying to give you like 50% off in your coffee. So I drank a lot of coffee. And so there's a lot of just, you know, growth coming from, you know, all of these platforms trying to, you know, uh, spend on acquisition. But I would say that's a pretty small part. Like it's still e-commerce is still, let's call it 10, 15% of total retail, right? And so a big portion of you know, Indonesia's real economy is still offline. And I would like to, you know, I, I often like to say that, you know, Cargo's mission is really to digitize a lot of this stuff. And so we do a lot of work and ba- basically bring these offline transactions, these offline logistics flows and supply chain flows online so we can bring a lot of transparency to, to you know, every party involved, right? But but I think the, the, the logistics infrastructure spend, you know, regardless of e-commerce, right? Like, like there's just a lot of middle class, a lot of commerce that needs to be moved. You know, Indonesians' workforce is getting better, more educated, and, and, and there's more factories being being invested in by, by foreign players. There's a strong, growing domestic market. Indonesia's adding to its population, middle class, you know, the same size of Singapore every year. And so what that means is, like, they're going to need to spend and they're going to need to, you know, like, buy shit. And so I think, you know, the, the, the infrastructure spend is, is really sort of built on back of basically a growing economy rather than just e-commerce. 
question like, Indonesia's digital economy was worth 27 billion in 2018, and now, two years later, it's 44 billion. So there's definitely been a shift in just three years around consumer behavior, enterprise mindset, and digital infrastructure. I'm curious to hear some cool stories about Cargo. Like, tell me about your first 100 years users and how it probably differs from your latest 100. The biggest difference is that in the beginning we were swinging, we're swinging for the fences, and like, like what that meant was came into this industry without any prior knowledge. Um, you know, I talked to a few trucking companies and a few you know distributors, and I was like, oh, I'm so smart, um, and and like I'm ready to figure this out. And like we got the tech, we got the the engineers, and and like we've got the fanciest tech, and like you know the inefficiencies are going to just be gone when they adopt our tech, right? Which is like completely wrong. But like you know, I went to Unilever and like these uh, Coca Cola. And these like really big brand name companies. And I was like, hey guys, like Uberize this whole thing. We got driver apps. You are used to pushing a button and, and a car, you know, comes. We're gonna do that with trucks. And you know, we we signed up like a couple of trucking companies. You can do this and we take 20%, right? And they like just laughed us out of the room. And they were like, dude, like we have enough trucks, like we're Unilever, like trucks, you know, trucking companies, you know, would love to serve us. We don't really need this because we have like phones and like spreadsheets. And I'm like, oh, but those are like so inefficient. And like, those are like 19th century technology. Like, what about the apps? And they're like, yo, like, that's not cool. Like, we, we just don't want it. Um, and, and so <laughs> we, we learned very quickly that, like, you know, the value proposition of just, like, having sort of, you know, being being able to find a truck and, and being able to be matched to the truck is, like, not a great value add. We actually needed to make sure that the truck came and arrived on time. We need to make sure that the truck was properly inspected and that, you know, some some of the requirements of these truck drivers were, were like, you need to wear a hard hat, you need to wear steel toe shoes, you need to have a vest like the trucking companies that we signed up like didn't have that and so we had to put people you know in front of these warehouses and to let people borrow our hard hat and and like steel toe shoes and vests so they can go in and get and pick up you know from the warehouse and when they came out we took it back to the next trucker right like actually man don't don't tell you in love we do that um we we did that in the beginning we just found that you know like this is super operationally intensive and to make it all worse like these big enterprise level customers are like, we're gonna give you the shittiest routes that nobody wants at the lowest prices. Oh, and by the way, we're gonna pay you in 90 days, right? And, and so we're just like, yes, please. <laughs> like, like, yes, please, we would love that. And so the first like 100 customers, um, because we thought like, hey, we wanted to get the brand name, the brand equity, and we wanted to have the big volume, we wanted those guys. And basically we just got our butts kicked, right? Like, like we really trained our like muscle and operational know-how by serving these really high, you know, sort of demand and like, like, like big customers. And we really got our butts kicked, right? Like this was really growing pains for us. We got to really be able to like, you know, come prepared and really come with our A game in order to be, in order to serve these big, big corporates. And I think like compare that to now, we still have those guys and, and certainly, you know, those guys are, you know, if you think about it as like a mall, those are like our anchor tenants, right? Like if you go into a mall, like the, the Sears or the Macy's are like, you know, the anchor tenants and, and certainly, you know, Unilever, Coca-Cola, they have a lot of volume, they're based, you know, they're based tenants. But, you know, we've been making a lot of headways into some of these smaller companies and mid cap companies and even like smaller, you know, SMEs, your mom and pop, like a textile manufacturer in Bundung, right? And I think that speaks to a couple of things. Number one is like, we're confident in enough that our solution like can 
can scale to you know smaller businesses and number two like we have the supply base so we don't you know we have a lot of trucks on our network that we can sort of supply all of these different customers and thirdly i think it's, it's because the value proposition of what we're doing is transparent to even the smallest guys who are finding value that like you know having a digital you know imprint of their logistics is better than just calling people on, on the phone and whatsapp groups and moving you know from how they normally manage their logistics on pieces of paper uh, towards something digital saves them time and saves them sort of operational headaches so I, I think that just speaks to the diversity of our offering and customer base and that like we're really really excited like we're excited to serve the you know, Unilevers and, um, and the Coca-Cola and, and certainly, like Coca-Cola, actually, even Kimon is our one of our strategic investors. But they're going to be fine without us, right? Like they've been in operations for decades, if not hundreds of years, in Indonesia, and then and then they're very profitable, and, and they're going to be okay, right? But the real impact of reducing logistics costs and making things easier, and really like being able to simplify shipping for some of the smaller, medium-sized businesses, really gets us going because Indonesia. This economy and, and, and growth is really going to be powered by these smaller businesses. And those are, you know, who are really excited to, to build for in, in the next uh, couple of years. Cool. Thanks, Tiger. And and so, like, speaking of truckers and trucks and your your customers, like, you and I last spoke um, at an Alter event about a year ago when you raised your Series A with a very unusual pitch. You wanted to raise a $1 million employee-formed relief fund for truckers. And not only that, but you pledged to give up your own salary for an entire year. So I'd love for you to tell the, our listeners just about that moment and how it's played out nearly a year later. Yeah, when we um, raised our Series A, basically at the end of 2019, the story in the pitch was actually, hey, we're going to really lean to our growth. 2020 is going to be a huge year for us. We found product market fit. And, you know, there's this uh, Lebaran coming, which is sort of like the national or like the festive season for, for Indonesians. And we're going to really lean hard into firing all cylinders to, to really, you know, be able to get some, you know, escape velocity to uh, in our business. And then obviously, like 2020, no one saw it coming was this a huge pandemic and, and I think Indonesia was one of those countries that you know didn't really take it seriously until perhaps it was a kind of you know a little bit late than let's call it some of their neighboring countries like like Thailand and, and Malaysia and, and Singapore and so we had this like almost half a year of we're going to shut down we're going to open up we're going to shut down we're going to open up and, and it's affected a lot of different industries and as truckers I like to say we're sort of like the veins, right? Like we're, we're sort of the blood circulation, you know, system of um, of the real economy because everything needs to be moved on trucks. And so we saw just like a lot of volatility in the number of jobs and therefore, you know, the truckers like income. And so we were very lucky that we had a strong balance sheet and that, you know, we knew we were going to survive COVID. And if you, you know, if you remember like in, you know, end of Q1 2020, like stock market has dropped by 30%. Like everybody was like, oh my God, this is going to be the next great, you know, global depression and like it was very very fearful right and so we thought hey look we, we have to cut back our expenses you know we're, we're lucky to have this this balance sheet but we need to recalibrate the company because we were on a growth trajectory to more of a let's be defensive and let's be let's fortify sort of our our balance sheet and let's fortify sort of our position so i think what that meant and i'm just so proud of the team for being able to be so quick and so the hustle and and sort of the ability to switch that mindset was just so impressive because you know we cut a lot of you know routes that weren't profitable we're keeping contributions sort of positive right away and then you know one of the biggest expenses obviously is 
our is our is our headcount. And so we were thinking about creative ways to do that. And one of the ways that we said was, hey, look, let's sort of you know take a percentage pay cut. I will lead by example and and, and basically say my entire salary for the rest of 2020 and, and and the first part of 2021 will go to this logistics relief fund, which is set up for our truckers. We have to make sure that the truckers um, stay moving because a lot of the critical supplies and and sort of you know just our truckers need to stay moving to ensure that supply chains don't get interrupted. And we were seeing that there was a huge cash crunch, um, you know, by by companies because they were they were trying to prepare their own sort of companies to think about how you know COVID is going to affect their productions. And so they were you know a lot of truckers were just left you know hanging and not being you know, not not paying the bills. But we knew that like like anything in life, like this is going to pass. And so if we can help sort of bridge some of that working capital, um, it would be a lifeline to these truckers. And so that's what we did. And uh, you know I'm super proud of the team. You know to this day, I think we still having got, gotten back to regular salary. I think this is the last month. But, you know, we were very lucky that, you know, all of us could still work during this pandemic. We didn't have to lay off folks. We were still lucky that we could work from home. And so, you know, that's not lost on us. And we feel that, like, the real heroes, right, are not us. It's the truck driver that still needs to go out every single day to make sure that, you know, water and critical supplies are still being delivered. And, and we were delivering things like PPEs. We were delivering things like COVID tests, right? And we're trying to help. We've offered our help to deliver vaccinations. And so, you know, I think during this whole period, the team really came together and it really fortified our sense of mission and it really fortified sort of, you know, why we're doing this. And so giving up salary is nothing compared to the positive, you know, effects of the business that we're able to stay open, that we, we came through, we came out of this pandemic as a stronger team. Wow. Tiger, every time I hear that story or every time I read about it, I'm just so in awe of you and your leadership team's decision to do this relief fund in the way that you did. It does make me laugh <laughs> to think about your interaction with your co-founder, Yodi, when this opportunity came up to, to forego salaries. If I remember correctly, he stepped right up to the plate, wanting to do it, wanting to forego his entire annual salary. But you're like, dude, you got a kid. And you managed to convince him to take just a bit of salary. We are, we are where we are as a company completely because of the people that were able to, to join the team. And, and Yodi is just, it has been an incredible thought partner and, and you know, being a, a co-founder of the company and has been leading by example every step of the way. Awesome. Yodi, by the way, for everyone in the audience and listening, um, Yodi is absolutely amazing. He has been teaching himself Mandarin for quite some time and now he and I text every now and then in, in Chinese. So it's quite impressive. All right, so Tiger, I just have three more questions for you. You and I have shared all these super compelling stats about Indonesia and about Southeast Asia, and yet we still face investors and even peers who sometimes still express serious doubt and pass over investment opportunities. What do you tell them that finally convinces them to see differently? What hook actually works? <laughs> well, I mean, I think um, like if folks are still passing on betting on Indonesia, like. You know that I, I don't think I'm going to be able to change their mind. Like I, I think there's already been you know success stories, right? And and I guess um, when when some of these unicorns actually you know get public market liquidity, there, there will be even more sort of interest. But I think like you know it's not like four or five years ago, right? Where you know you still had to talk a lot about like like after you've explained sort of the business model and explained the team and you explained the TAM, like it's still about selling the TAM. I mean, and I think this that that has just largely not been the case anymore. When I, when I speak to investors, it's usually not about 
hey, you know, do we think, do we consider Indonesia, you know, still as a risk? Like there's obviously country risks and there's probably some premium that investors would expect in investing in Indonesia. But I think, you know, the TAM question, I think, is, is largely gone. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's really, really great. And I think, you know, compared to some of the other countries that Elter has entrepreneurs in, like, like Pakistan or like some other countries in Nigeria, I think we're very lucky in that regard. But I think the, the challenge is still around, like, have they done a deal in Indonesia, right? And like, what are the ways for folks to exit? Has there been success stories, right? And I think, I think even that um, is changing because I think, you know, we're going to see hopefully in the next few quarters, like a lot of really great and shiny and bright Indonesian companies start to list in the public markets in the U.S. But uh, I think, um, you know, the, the questions are, are like, I still find myself doing a lot of education on basically like, Great Indonesia has a great return profile. It's got a lot of like really great statistics, like you know from from a macro perspective. Like, what is it really like to operate there? What is it really like to do business there? Like, what does the app adoption look like? And what is what is that sort of like customer journey that you take a corporate that's based in Indonesia from? And I think that's you know that, that's okay. I, I think uh, you know even even in the U.S., like I feel like uh, you know that's still sort of a challenge is you got to be able to you know sell the business. But I think when investors are not on the ground or, you know, perhaps have not really invested in emerging markets, taking them through sort of like what is the the actual customer journey and the challenges around that, I think, um, you know, well, number one, probably put off some folks and, and people just think, you know, people think it's too early and, and they're still like, you know, they don't want to be the first person to, to be in. But the guys that are really going to find the returns, right, is is like they think that there's a right amount of sort of like risk that are there, but the opportunity is, is obviously huge. And you end up you know, essentially finding the investors that you're really meant to find. And so we're very lucky to have, you know, world-class investors that's, you know, invested in Indonesia and folks like Elter who, you know, you guys have so much conviction in these emerging markets and and, and finding, you know, entrepreneurs from these emerging markets. And so I really, you know, I, I really think you guys are just, you know, going to be the folks that are going to find outsized returns more than, you know, more than the big sort of distribution of, of investors. And once like all those guys come in, then maybe it's too late and uh, you probably want to look elsewhere. <laughs> Thanks, Tiger. Yeah, I, I mean, when I think about what we at Alter do, at the end of the day, we're looking for these success stories. We're looking for these role model entrepreneurs who, like I mentioned before, they're not just inspiring, or they're not just building their own companies, they're building their countries. They're inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs to also realize that they too can create a game-changing business. And they're inspiring also investors to think differently and think beyond their borders, especially in Silicon Valley. And just recognizing that there's so much potential and so much excitement in places like Indonesia and South Southeast Asia. And, you know, like talking about more of these optimistic investors or more of these investors who've been friendly to you and Cargo, I also always have enjoyed hearing you talk about the tech mafias of Southeast Asia. So just like we have the PayPal mafia or the Breakfast Club here in Silicon Valley, there's also, um, as you know, the Lazada crew or the Grab crew, the Gojek crew. Can you tell us a bit more about like how that has helped you and how you're looking to help Southeast Asia continue growing in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the cool things about you know tech as an ecosystem all over the world is this like founders helping founders and folks who maybe have had some success comes back and, and reinvest you know, as an angel, as an advisor, as part of a mentor network, right? And so in, in some respect, like Alter is really a manifestation of that um, across sort of like culture and cross, cross-border sort of, you know, sharing of, you know, certainly like talent and sector sort of like expertise, right? So we've had, you know, great Alter fellows, you know, who came from, 
uh, McKinsey's who came from Google and were you know very excited about you know moving to Indonesia um, before this whole thing obviously um, because now immigration is a little bit harder and just dive right in rolling up their sleeves to to solve real problems and I think like we are going to succeed like cargo is going to you know break out ahead of local competitors or or you know any other sort of like traditional companies because we have access to global talent and global capital and so i think of it as 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 a as a great sort of like natural sort of competitive advantage um you know for us but to your to your original question there's certainly a lot of folks that have really like come out of these pioneering sort of like tech companies to start sort of things that are themselves, right? And so like, you know, my stories with Lazada, like like I was a finance guy, banker, had no clue how to build warehouses. But guess what? Back then, like nobody did. Right. And so it was it was like you have to sort of be be ready to do that and be ready to come and sort of like roll up your sleeves. Now, right, there's been like almost 10 years of investment into digital logistics, e-commerce, like marketing, online marketing. You can very quickly be able to find talent that's you know been able to do this, um, you know, for that have done this for a while and be able to like fit right into to your sort of needs. So the cost and the time to start businesses has really dramatically shrank, right? And also obviously like with AWS like all of these you know sort of technical like requirements for you to really just start a business and start a brand online with all these like social media channels has has shrank right so i just see it as also just you know this is a natural evolution of the tech ecosystem um is that you know folks are going to come out and, and sort of like do their own thing and certainly like the x rocket internet crew we were we were like the first sort of like people to to come in and, and really be able to execute a lot of this stuff and make a lot of mistakes i think a lot of a lot of us have uh you know, since then, like started our own companies or, or joined, you know, very, very early stage startup and gotten sort of pretty senior roles. And we, so, so we reign very friendly. There's like WhatsApp groups where um, it's the ex Lazada crew. I still keep in touch with, um, you know, Dave. Dave was like my first boss basically at Lazada. He started a great, you know, fashion company called Pamelo in Thailand um, that's really fast growing. All of the, the, the ex Lazada folks are stay, stay in touch. And then for Uber as well, like, you know, a good friend of mine, Alan, started Beam, which is a micro mobility sort of like scooter, you know, business. I just got off the phone with a few few you know, other sort of country managers that have now started th- um, their business in various countries all over Southeast Asia. I hope to help by like, you know, number one, just telling them about my experience, about fundraising, about, you know, how to set up companies and just like, there's a lot of just like really tactical things that I think first time founders, you know, don't have to make that same mistake that I did. Um, and then secondly, is that, you know, I think we, we we sort of can help each other from a financial perspective as well. And so, you know, we, I've been a very avid angel investor in a lot of like ex-Uber and ex-Lazada sort of like co-founders that have um, founded companies just to show support and like, they're going to be fine without my money, but hopefully like they'll take it and then they don't feel that's bad calling me for help. Love that tiger. All right, so I have one more question. Earlier you mentioned talent and even the Alter Fellowship Program. Um, so for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, the Alter Fellowship Program offers early professionals, maybe four-ish years into their career, an opportunity to spend six months to two years abroad at one of our high-growth ventures. And so you were just talking about how talent has been so key to all this momentum that Cargo has built. And it's just so interesting that everywhere we read about how talent is the number one barrier to Southeast Asia's continued fast-paced digital economy momentum. And I know you yourself, you've been like a huge advocate of not just your Indonesian teammates, but also the whole world coming to join you, Yodi, and the team in Jakarta. So 
tell our listeners, why should they join you in Indonesia and specifically at Cargo? I'd love to talk about like leverage. And I think this is probably one of the best career advice I've ever gotten, which is to use leverage for your career. And what I mean by that is, you know, you should seek to find a fast growing part of the world, right? So, you know, country specific and find sort of a sector within that country that's experiencing a lot of tailwinds and sort of, and sort of growth, right? And then a company within that sector that is experiencing tremendous growth, right? And so, so you know, you working at a startup, you will already be asked to do crazy amount of things, but those sort of tailwinds are only going to give you more leverage in your own career. And so that's actually what, how I applied this sort of like principle to me coming to Southeast Asia because I thought, hey, you know, Southeast Asia is going to just experience all of these massive growth and e-commerce is, you know, is, is, is poised to break out. And obviously Lozada was you know, the company that was hiring back then. And so, you know, all of those things, you know, put together is what, you know, gave me the opportunity to be able to experience all the things that, you know, then got me a job at Uber and Uber is the same thing, right? Like ride hailing was a, was sort of a business model I was taking, taking off. Uber was really fast growing and then I wanted to be in Asia. And so I think um, cargo specifically, like Indonesia is, it's so important on the global stage, right? It's the fourth biggest country in terms of population. It is the biggest country, Muslim country in the world, a secular Muslim country in the world. And so like United States just has so much, and I don't wanna get into geopolitics too much, but like because I'm ethnically Chinese and, and because I've worked in China and think, and I have a lot of Chinese investors on my cap table and naturally sort of, you know, gets me to thinking about like, how does Southeast Asia, Indonesia specifically sort of, you know, position itself in a world of, you know, China and US, um, you know, sort of, you know, a tech Cold War and and how you know Indonesia is going to be strategically important being around you know being on that maritime Silk Road and and being a largest democracy and so all of that is to say that like there's just tremendous amount of global type of interest right geopolitically economically in Indonesia it's just one of perhaps I I think the most interesting place to be in the next let's call it like decades or the next century and you know logistics is just. It's 25% of this country's GDP. And so that's growing fast. It's $200 billion today and it's growing, you know, KGAR like north of, north of 10%. And, and obviously cargo, you know, we're, we're, we're very excited to be in the bleeding edge of this logistics transformation that's going to happen in this country. And, and I think like because of the dynamic nature of Indonesia as a, you know, as a geography, right? I mentioned that 17,000 islands, it's, you know, all of these, you know, really, really crazy sort of geographic challenges. The way that we're thinking about product and the way that we're thinking about, you know, rolling out and modularizing our offering. So, you know, if we can make it and scale it in Indonesia, then we're so confident that we can do it in other countries as well. And so, you know, we always like to say between Yodi and I that we want to build in Indonesia for the rest of the world. And certainly our ambition um, is to create a global company. And so, you know, we're thinking about expanding not just Indonesia, but to, to other countries, certainly within this geography, as soon as we're ready. And so hopefully that will give you plenty of leverage. And then we're just like pretty cool guys, you know, like I hope like, you know, I don't sound too, too harsh. And like, I think all of us are, are pretty chill and we're pretty open-minded. And so I think it's going to be fun to, to work with us. So we're hiring like in all positions. Don't feel shy. Drop me a line. You know, we love, we love to, to talk to you if you're, if you're interested in an elder fellowship um, or, or coming, you know, to visit us in Indonesia and work with us. Wow, Tiger, you just when I thought I couldn't be sold anymore about Jakarta or Indonesia or cargo, I mean, you definitely sold me twice over. And Jesse, you better watch out because I might take you up on that offer. <laughs> I, 
right, Tiger. So thank you so much for taking this time to do this Clubhouse Room with us and our first ever podcast episode. I'm really excited and I can't wait to do the next one with you. And we'll probably dive deeper into some of the opportunities and challenges um, you've faced since COVID and all of your continued success. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Venture Boldly. We'll be back soon. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. To learn more about our ventures or meet our team, you can visit our website at alter.bc. That's A-L-T-E-R dot B-C. We'll catch you next time on Venture Boldly, an Alter podcast.